G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merch, the producer and host, and today let's dive straight into our feature guest. Anna Smirk grew up on a lavender farm in Australia. By 2016, her first solo EP, Song of the Silver-Tongued Magpie, was in flight, as are they in their role in international development. Their latest, an EP called Swim, draws from those experiences abroad in places like the Solomon Islands and Cambodia. They've also experienced seeing the rise of the waters in the Pacific Islands, giving them a first look at the Earth's environmental futures. First up, performed live for radio notes in a park with planes overhead, The Wait. We 
Anna Smirk, welcome to Radio Notes. Thanks for having me. Let's firstly take you back. Scarlet Music, when you picked up your first guitar at the age of 13. That The day that I got my first acoustic guitar, my dad took me to, to Scarlet Music in Footscray in the western suburbs of Melbourne and we picked out the guitar together. I'd been playing the violin for, for a few years um, at that stage, but my dad always played guitar, so I kind of wanted to be a little bit like him, I think, and I ended up yeah picking out a beautiful steel string acoustic guitar which I played for many years and that's where my songwriting kind of life began I suppose I was about 13 at that stage and I I would sit in my room after school and start writing songs and I would cringe to hear them now I'm sure but you know it was the start of a long journey. What was his guitar life experience like that you saw as a young teenager? grew up with a lot of music around the house. Both my parents really loved music, but my dad played a lot of music with his mates, you know, in his 20s and when he was growing up. In later life, or has or has continued to play in, um, he plays bass mostly these days in a rock and roll, kind of 60s rock and roll band. So a lot of my childhood, you know, Sunday afternoons were spent at the pub with all the other kids of the people in the band and we would be dancing to the rock and roll tunes down at the pub. And whilst that was the 60s, was there some original music coming through his repertoire? as well? There has been more recently actually. Um, It's been interesting to see they were doing mostly cover gigs when I was growing up but just in the last few years my dad's also taken on a bit of songwriting so it's an interesting new sort of element to our relationship talking about songwriting together. What were the conversations like before that? Was it about records, about the music or was it about something else? What guitar conversations were you having? I guess with my dad, the conversations were were really always about song, you know, we're both real lovers of the craft of song and I grew up listening with him to artists like Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell, so a lot of the conversations we would have about music would be about the stories that the songs were telling and how the artists managed to put you in a place and put you in a mood and take you to a certain time. What kind of gigs, if any, was he taking you to, apart from his own, of course? Oh, that's a good question. I don't remember going to a ton of gigs with my dad when I was younger. I do remember the first gig he took me to was a John Butler Trio gig at the Palais down in St Kilda in Melbourne when I must have been like 15 or 16 and that really just blew me away. Like I thought that you know what John Butler Trio was doing up there on the stage with a full theatre full of people hanging on every note was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. He was the kind of chaperone, I suppose, um, and I went with a couple of friends from school who I ended up playing a lot of music with later on down the track as well, so I think it was a bit of a spark for all of us. What was the songwriting inspiration during those teenage years? I've always written a lot from, from my own life. That's been a starting a starting place. In terms of musical inspiration, at that time I was listening to a lot of artists. Um, I was playing a lot more piano than guitar at that stage, in fact, and I was listening to a lot of artists like Regina Spector and Ben Folds who have a lot of, you know, piano-heavy songs. So I, I, I was really interested in that kind of, especially what Regina Spector does with playing around with sort of strange sounds and strange forms of songs and sort of a little bit sort of trying to shock or make the listener unsure what's coming up next but yeah later on I sort of came back to the guitar again and and since since the last few years I've been writing a lot more on guitar. Did you ever get a Nord for yourself? I have not had a Nord it's one of the things I would really like to have (laughs) in my life now. Would that take you back to the piano even more? I think it would you know like I've always had a keyboard in my life I do write a little bit on keyboard these days but I think it's something I'm interested in for my next record actually to be writing a bit more on piano and seeing what that might do to my songwriting. 
Where was the first piano that you played? The first piano I played, that's a good question. You know, it was probably at my house growing up because my older sister played piano. We all learnt piano as kids, me and my two sisters. Violin was my first instrument, but seeing my older sister learn piano, I wanted to get on board as well. So I, I learnt piano from a quite a young age as well. I learnt classical violin and piano, so it was much more a focus on, you know, learning technique and learning interpretation than songwriting. So I think that's why the guitar at that time, when I did pick up the guitar, it I felt like because I didn't have a technical background in that area and I never really took a, a bunch of lessons or anything like that in guitar, it's just something I've sort of taught myself over the years, I feel like it, it has enabled me to be a bit more free in my songwriting because I don't have that sort of technical, critical brain going on behind the scenes. Did you find the eight years of age a good age to start the violin because we hear about kids that start at two three right. and all this kind of stuff yeah, but yeah. for you well it's funny you know I don't think I'd ever really seen a violin least of all played one but for some reason I really got it into my head that that was the thing I wanted to do and I just begged my parents for a couple of weeks that if they would allow me to you know get a little violin and start having lessons I, maybe I must have seen it on tv or something I don't know where it came from it was just something an idea that I fixated on and I really wanted to play and I think it was a great age to start playing the violin you know I think some kids do start younger and I guess it depends on the kid for me you know it was an age where I was I guess I had enough dexterity to be able to to be able to put it together eventually. Although I'm sure my parents might disagree with that in the first couple of years. I I, I think it was probably not a pleasant experience for my family the first few years of of a child learning violin in the home. I did teach violin to kids as well later on, and I I would say that eight is a really great age. You know, it's an age where kids are starting to really get into to music more generally, so they can relate to it at a good level at that age. Talking about that family home, we'll get back to that point. Pick up that thread. Surely the parents were enduring chopsticks on the piano from your older sister around the same time, if not before. Yeah, exactly right. So I think they were they were willing to put up with a lot for us. As I mentioned, my dad is, was a, a really great music lover, is, is a really great music lover. But he, um, growing up, he didn't have a lot of opportunities to learn music and learn instruments. It was something that he picked up a bit later in life. So I think um, he was really keen to give us, you know, some opportunities that he didn't have from a young age. Having those musical instruments, or the piano at least, Mm. and of course the guitar I'm sure was there as well from your father. You can equate it to something like having books around the home and that sparking a love of reading in kids. I think it was just, it was just around, it was just part of my life. It's something I probably took for granted at, at that time that that's just what homes look like. They were full of instruments and people were playing music all the time. Obviously now I know that not every home is like that, but, you know, I really think they should be if they can. (laughs) We're currently having a chat to Anna Smirk. She has just released an EP in 2019 called Swim. I want to know where you were writing your songs, your original songs during those teenage years. Where I grew up was a 10-acre property sort of outside of the small town where I lived in Gisborne in, in the Macedon Ranges in Victoria. Um, so I did spend a fair bit of time outside sitting under a tree and strumming on my guitar. You know, having that sense of space was, was probably important now that I reflect on it because I was quite shy. I was quite a shy teenager, so I wouldn't have dared to play these songs to anybody at that age when I first started writing, but perhaps having that sense of space where I could go off and start trying out ideas without anybody being able to hear me was important. The lavender fields, what were they like? 
They were very beautiful, you know. We had a couple of top paddocks that were just rows of lavender bushes. Beautiful to look at, beautiful to smell. I have strong memories of being a small child and being woken up by friends of the family because mum and dad were out picking the lavender before it got too hot in summer. The lavender farm was the hobby farm for my parents. Um, They both had other jobs, but yeah, it was a bit of a passion project for them. I think they would collect the lavender and turn it into little sort of sachets and potpourri and things like that and sell it down at the local market on Sunday mornings. They'd moved to the country from Melbourne and it was a really beautiful way for them to connect with the place. Did that give you an early sense of what beauty was? Because some childhoods can be quite grey and bleak, but Mm. here you are. Or, Or wasn't that the case, that you were so used to it that it didn't have that appeal initially? Again, I probably took it for granted, if I'm honest. (laughs) It's the kind of thing you don't realise that it's quite special until you don't have it anymore or until you see what other people sometimes have instead. But I think it's definitely given me a love for, for nature and for the outdoors. I have lived in cities mostly the last few years, but it's always been my intention to get back to the country at some point. Let's move on to the big topic of the day with our guest, Anna, and that is of international development. What is it? Well, that's a good question. It's a bit of an umbrella term, I guess, and I think a lot of people would define it in different ways. Good that I asked you. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, it's not a term that... I don't necessarily love the term, but I think it's a sort of shorthand for the kind of work that I've been doing the last few years. Well, let's reword it then. What would you call this element of the international that you've been doing? Mm. It's taken a few different faces, but I think what's common to it for me has been working in an international context, so working in other countries and trying to work with people to uh, make positive changes. And ideally, those positive changes are, you know, what the community themselves have identified as needing or what the country themselves has identified as needing to change. That means there's a lot of overseas travel. Mm. Where is home? Another very good and complex question. When I think about going home, I think about going back to my parents' place, back to the farm, back to Gisborne. Um, Back to the lavender? Back to the lavender, yeah. But home has been many different places for me. And, you know, at the moment I'm based in Melbourne, so I, I come back to there. When I've been away, that's where I come back to. But it does feel a little bit temporary as well. So home, I think... I've been thinking about this a lot the last few years when I've been traveling and I think home is really something that you actively create. It's a verb to me, it's a doing word, something that you develop and you've got to invest in continually for it to sustain. Is that why home and love are so close together? that you need to invest in it, that Mm. you need to give it time, you need to give it consideration. Yeah, I think that could be, you could be onto something there. You know, there's that old cliche that home is where the heart is. And I think that that's true. You know, you need to be investing in relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or or otherwise, in the same way you need to be investing in home and putting the time in and, and putting the care in to keep them continuing, I guess. What gives you that feeling when you go to a place like the Solomon Islands? Mm. It's always around either people or nature for me, you know. So some of the places and times when I've experienced that feeling, I suppose, have been where I've over time managed to, yeah, create friendships with with people and have really lovely, just carefree moments of enjoying each other's company, maybe having a meal together, sharing conversation. Um, It doesn't have to be anything anything crazy, you know. It's just a, a matter of 
being comfortable with people and being able to be yourself, I think, which can be quite a challenge when you're in a different place and a different culture. You know, there's sometimes certain aspects of yourself that you or certain aspects that you might feel you, you don't highlight as much in certain places. And then in, in a place like the Solomon Islands, the natural beauty is just incredible. You know, it's some of the most gorgeous beaches and jungles and coral reefs and things like that that I've ever seen. And it's pretty spectacular to just be sort of paddling along in a canoe in a lagoon somewhere and there's nobody for miles around and the water's the clearest, most beautiful aqua and there's islands covered with jungle on, on every side. It's idyllic. What's your sense of time when you're there? It's an interesting paradox, I think, because in many parts of the Solomon Islands, my experience at least, was that time has a very different meaning. In the Solomons, it's urbanising a lot, but there's still majority of the population living in quite isolated areas, in small communities, where they grow a lot of their own food and catch their own fish and things like that. So time is much more tied to the rising of the sun in the morning and the setting of the sun at night and the seasons. Mm-hmm. That connection between time and the importance of what needs to be done. That was the thing I really had to learn in the Solomons was that sometimes it's more important to sit down together and spend a few hours talking than it is to go and dig up the potatoes from the garden. So if that doesn't happen that day, that's okay. You know, things that will happen tomorrow. I think there's a real sense of space around time that you prioritise people and family and community and and those things take time and they don't always run to schedule. So, but yeah, it is difficult sometimes when I sort of felt a lot of the time that I was stuck between these two worlds. I really love that idea of time being such a flexible, malleable thing, but at the same time I was working with organisations and governments and trying to complete things to deadlines and to budgets and things like that. And so it sort of felt like trying to make those two worlds match in some way was a bit of a struggle. Was there a level of insanity about that as well? The yeah. A split personality type? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a real part of it. You know, I think it's just the nature of, of this kind of work where it's one of the things that I think we can do better at in this kind of work is that a lot of the time the way that we work is really based on Western or, you know, models of time and the ways of working that come from countries like Australia or, you know, countries where the money is coming from a lot of the time. But I think we could do a lot better at trying to adapt that to the context that we're working in. As you said, you've been invited to help out. Mm. That's why you're there. Mm. But if you don't get that time or a chance to actually listen to what they actually want you to do then you end up with just a checklist and a series of grants absolutely and in fact you know this ties in with the idea of time as well because to be able to listen effectively you have to take in the time to establish a relationship and a way of communicating where people are, are speaking with you honestly I think it's very hard to just walk into a place and sort of sit down and ask people what they need and for them to be able to respond to that in a way that's honest and true you know I think taking the time to develop relationships is always first step and then once there's a level of trust it's about listening and trying to respond to that as best you can. As a musician you bring a level of skills that you can share that aren't necessarily uncommon to the skills that members in that community have learnt as well. Yeah, music is a huge part of life, especially in a place like the Solomons. I think people just grow up singing from day one, almost before they talk, they can sing, was my experience at least. It's a huge part of 
different milestones in life you know there was really important times where a community member would pass away and there'd be a funeral and a wake there's singing for several nights straight while while people are watching over the body and it's a real moment where people come together and singing together in those moments I think can be really really powerful there's a comfort I think in that in there being being certain pieces of music that go along with certain times of life. I think that's something I think we, we've lost a little bit in countries like Australia, at least in the sort of secular world that I grew up in, that we don't really have a lot of rituals around that kind of mm. thing. What I really noticed in the Solomon Islands in Cambodia is the same thing that around these times there's certain music that accompanies these important parts of life. Little cues that right. let you know where you are mm. within that beauty that you're talking about right. as well. Hi, I'm Rishi K. Shirway. And I'm Joshua Molina. We're from the West Wing Weekly and you're currently listening to Radio Notes. Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. You can join us on The West Wing Weekly for an episode-by-episode breakdown of the television show The West Wing. Josh was the star of the show, and we give you behind-the-scenes insights and deep dives into the issues raised in the storylines of the show. You can find us on Radiotopia.fm or through your favorite podcaster. For now, back to John Merch and Radio Notes.
Benjamin, from our guest Anna Smirk's Swim EP, performed live for Radio Notes. Anna, whilst you're in places like particularly Solomon Islands, I'm thinking here, what was your sense of the climate and how the climate might be changing? It was a real eye-opener for me, in fact, because climate change has been something that I've been trying to stay quite aware of over the last few years, but it wasn't until I got to the Solomon Islands that I really saw how it's already affecting people now, today. They've lost five islands in the Solomons. They've just gone underwater. Let's highlight that. That's five islands Mm. that have disappeared. Just gone underwater. Yep, that's it. And even the islands that haven't gone underwater are really experiencing huge changes. You know, I'm thinking of one place where I visited very small little community I had a couple of days off work and I I took a plane out to the closest center jumped on the back of a truck for four or five hours and then jumped into a canoe from there and got paddled out to this community there's not really a way of communicating to them from the outside so they didn't know I was coming the local pastor took me in for a couple of days and I stayed with his family which was super lovely but um, one of the places he took me to was we just we were walking we we're doing a little circle around the island walking around and at one point we walked out into the ocean we just started walking into the ocean and two were about shin deep and he said to me well this is the spot where I used to play soccer with my friends after school so you know the waters have already risen that much just in a couple of decades so that kind of thing that really just brought it home to me this is a small island we're talking about How did you deal with your own emotions? You've got a past here, here's someone of faith, and and you need to communicate with him at that point. I felt very connected to him in that moment. He was incredibly generous with his feelings to me and his fears for the future and his fears for his children's future because in that community they grow all their own food. So as the waters rise, there's just less and less land to grow food and they're not really sure what they're going to do in the next generation. In terms of communicating, by that stage I had a good grasp of the language, the the local language, so that really helped a lot. Communicating across kind of faith lines was something I also got much better at negotiating, I think, because, um, yeah, Solomon Islands is a very religious country. Um, It's a very Christian country, several different denominations, and it's just a huge part of people's lives. Personally, never been a huge fan of organised religion myself growing up, but it gave me a more nuanced view of the role that religion can play in people's lives, I think, being in, being in the Solomon Islands. It was really interesting to see how people would take their Christian faith and sit that next to more traditional beliefs um, and just have that as being, you know, they, they had all these things inside their faith and their beliefs um, sitting perfectly comfortably together. Um, and I thought that was, quite, that was quite a special and beautiful way of approaching the world, you know, just being very open to different ideas that come along. Did you change your own beliefs through that? I didn't change my own beliefs through that. I did become less critical, perhaps, of organised religion. Um, so perhaps you could call that a change of belief. You know, my own beliefs in, in faith didn't change or anything like that, but I became a lot more understanding of people who do have that as part of their life. Let's bring it back to the issue of climate change or even climate fact mm. that is happening right there, mm. as you were saying. 
how the local community is seeing that. So when you're on the ground, as you said, he, he is, probably was a pretty good soccer player, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he was. What the impact was on them. Mm, mm-hmm. Because for them, maybe there's nothing they can do. Mm. Maybe it's just an absolute effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tough, I think, because, you know, I was really impressed with the level of knowledge that people had about climate change, even in the most remote areas where maybe historically not a lot of people have had formal education, but everybody is completely on top of their climate change knowledge. They really know what's going on and why, because they have to. There's no choice. But in terms of what they can do about it, there's very little that can be done in the Solomon Islands itself in terms of changing their own patterns of consumption and things like that. You know, it's changing a lot, but it's in the 80s. 80-something percent of people are subsistence farmers and and fishers. So the rate of consumption and things like that is certainly far, far less than, than a place like Australia. So there's a real sense that they need world leaders to step up and for more wealthy countries to step up. They're looking to their own governments to be pushing on the world stage, but of course that's difficult as well, you know. The leaders of countries like the Solomon Islands don't have perhaps the same clout as the leaders from other countries on the world stage. What they do have, I think, are these personal stories of how everyday people's lives are really being impacted negatively. So I think there's a real appetite to try and tell some more of those stories on the world stage. When you arrived at the island, as you said, no-one knows you're coming can't just put in a a teletext or a fax or something (laughs) does that happen a lot in your job it happens a little yeah it depends what I'm doing I try to in my job I work a lot with local organizations and try to work with them to be the ones doing a lot of the outreach to communities I feel that that works a lot better to have local teams doing a lot of the direct work with communities than me going in as an outsider if I am going along it's always with a team of local people They tend to have ways of connecting to communities that I don't know, you know. someone They'll know someone who's travelling down there a few days earlier so they can give them a bit of a heads up or something like that. Because my sense is you're being invited and that they'd put on a plate for you. Yeah. What's your sense of taste whilst you're doing these international trips? Mm. I've certainly encountered a lot of things I I haven't in other parts of the world, that's for sure. Food, I think, has been a huge part of connecting to people in different places that I've been in I love my food and I I love trying different kinds of food so that's you know always a real pleasure for me too but what's so beautiful I think when you do go to these communities is how much pride people take in providing you with a beautiful meal and it's always you know food fresh from the garden or fish fresh from the ocean it's really beautiful stuff and yeah it's lovely to be able to sit down with people and, and share that with them. Has it helped your own cooking? Ooh, yeah, probably, now that now that you mention it. I've always loved to cook. I definitely learned a few things in the Solomons. Like, for example, I learned how to motu, which is the... Motu is the stone kind of oven. They cook fish and potatoes and things like that in. So you build up a big fire on a bed of rocks and let the fire die down. Then you've got the hot stones and you wrap the food up in banana leaves and put them underneath the stones and wait till it starts to to smell good that's when you know it's ready get some bamboo sticks and move the stones off and you've got some you unwrap the the fish and and the cassava and the the beautiful food slippery cabbage was the main greens it's this kind of like a spinach I suppose often cooked in coconut milk it's very delicious yeah you unwrap the the banana leaves and everything's cooked to perfection what are the sunsets like in Solomon Islands. Uh, Like nothing I've ever seen. They're spectacular. 
especially when you're on the deck of a little leaf hut in the middle of nowhere and on a beautiful coastline and you're seeing the sunset over completely still blue ocean can't even really put it into words it's spectacular these travels have been very key i believe to the release particularly of swim the ep Mm. future releases that i'm sure you're working on in the background are these the stories that are inspiring the new songs or are there some other topics that have come to mind absolutely i feel like my songwriting is always influenced by what i'm doing at the time and things that i've been thinking about and things that have been happening so a lot of what i'm writing about at the moment is some time that i've been spending in the philippines that's where i've been most recently is that for the same line of work or yeah, is this a holiday? It's, no, it's for the same line of work, but I've been trying to, to juggle things a little bit better instead of spending long chunks away from Australia and from touring and playing music. I'm sort of doing a few months on, a few months off, which has been, which has been really interesting. A lot of what I've been writing lately has been about that sort of, that shift of moving between places quite a lot and the way that means leaving people behind a lot, saying a lot of goodbyes. I suppose maybe the songwriting has become less about the eye-opening experiences of being in new places and more about the sort of the feeling of moving around a lot, the unsettling feeling of moving around a lot and what that can do to your relationships and what that can do to you, to you. yeah, your own feelings about a place, I suppose. We've mentioned home, we've mentioned religion and how both have had a sense of change over the years and have educated you in a way. Yeah. Has this travel changed your cultural perspective of who you are, though? Yeah, absolutely. I think spending a long period of time and getting to know other cultures makes you realise that you have a culture. You take so much for granted, I think, in your own culture. The way that we do things, uh, the way things that you're used to are just normal to you. But by experiencing other cultures and seeing how they do things makes you reflect on your own culture and where certain assumptions come from. How do you, and answer it as lightly or as deeply as you wish, how do you keep personal relationships strong with the amount of travel that you do? I guess that's something I'm still still figuring out and it's changing a lot, but I think being in a lot of different places over the last four or five years, yeah, it's really made me think about the kind of relationships and friendships that I want. I'm very lucky to have some really strong friendships in Melbourne. So every time I'm back there, I feel like I can definitely pick up where I left off with lots of friends and family members. I've been lucky to be able to travel a lot with my partner. He's in a similar line of work, so that often works out quite well, but not always. And that's definitely a big challenge. Um, Long distance relationships are, are pretty tough, but both of us have a lot of crazy and amazing things that we want to do and that's just the way that it goes. Does that also bring us back to time as well and the sense of time? So, hey, maybe we're not together for these number of months even, but when we do, you'll have your stories, I'll have my stories and we have our stories? Definitely. Yeah, definitely I think that's a part of it. I think it's really important, for, for me anyway, it's really important for both people in a relationship to be able to be doing what it is that they love and do it what it is that they want to do and I think if we if we didn't have that then I wouldn't be able to continue you know that's just the way I am and as much as it's difficult to move around if I'm in one place for too long that's also difficult for me (laughs) I need to yeah I think I do need that sense of adventure in my life it's really what I love Um, in terms of other relationships you know I've had to come to terms with the fact that 
develop some really intense friendships with people when you're in a place for a short time and it's a place where perhaps you don't know a lot of people so you kind of develop really close friendships with it, perhaps a small group of people and then when you leave often you're saying goodbye without knowing or kind of knowing you may not see them again and you know you can always keep in touch these days in various ways but I have to admit I'm not the best at doing that I feel like I tend to live my friendships in the moment but I think I've come to some sense of peace with that that you know you have a really amazing friendship with someone for a certain period of time and in a certain place and you can learn so much from that and and get so much from that and hopefully give as much as you're getting and then you know when it's run its course it's run its course and it doesn't diminish the fact that it was there in the first place. Does it also help that you are a singer-songwriter that you do have a chance to document that? Yeah I think it does yeah perhaps it does help it also helps me to remember I think when I'm playing the songs it really takes me back to the places that I'm singing about. Our time today has come to an end. With more travels, I'm sure we'll have more stories in the future. Anna Smirk, thanks for joining Radio Notes. Thanks for having me.
Pocket Knife by Anna Smirk, performed live for radio notes in a park in Theberton. They can be found online at annasmirk.com. Next time on Radio Notes. Life can be grown under any Petri dish. You see people living on the sides of dirt roads under tarpaulins. Life can be found anywhere, but our lives are incredibly special to those of us around us, and we hold on to that, and I think music is primarily for those people. I think people who have delusions of grandeur with music often miss that playing to five people who really love you, that's actually music's purpose and always has been. You know, music was for the parlour, for a group of friends. You know, Schubert had this group of men he used to hang around and we sort of assume now that they were all romantically connected as well. But uh, they were poets and playwrights and and they all used to get Mm. into Schubert's little bedroom where he had a little piano and they'd give Schubert poetry and he'd improvise a song to it and then one would sit down and try and sing over something Schubert was playing. This is what music's for. That's Robert McFarlane of band Cold Sleep will be our feature guest. That's next time, but for today, thank you very much to our very special guest, Anna Smirk. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 